Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Fueled by successes like Roseanne, Seinfeld, and Home Improvement, recruiting stand-up comics became the top priority for TV networks in the 90s. This was the era of the great stand-up sitcom boom, and talent coordinators, producers, and directors packed comedy clubs in Los Angeles nearly every night looking for the next Jerry Seinfeld or Tim Allen. In 1995, the owner of The Laugh Factory joked that on any given night, 40% of his audience was made up of industry people. Clubs were raided as network reps got into bidding wars over up-and-coming comedians. This was a time of exuberance, and lucky comedians could end up with six-figure development contracts. Sometimes those deals worked out, but other times they failed miserably. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and on this episode of History of the 90s, we continue our look back at some of the hits and misses from the 90s stand-up sitcom boom. One of the big success stories from this era was Everybody Loves Raymond. It ran on CBS from 1996 to 2005 and followed the lives of Ray and Deborah, a married couple raising their three young kids next door to Ray's intrusive but lovable parents. The show was created by series star Ray Romano and writer Phil Rosenthal, and it drew mainly on Romano's stand-up routine, which he had honed in New York comedy clubs in the early 80s. In 1989, Romano won a citywide comedy contest, which helped him land his first television appearance on MTV's Half Hour Comedy Hour. But it wasn't until Romano's 1995 appearance on The Late Show with David Letterman that his career would really take off. That's what amazed me in in Montreal. I went into a uh, Burger King. The Burger King employees are required to be bilingual. Just think about that for a second, folks. Have you you been to Burger King in New York? Yeah, they're not even lingual here. Letterman was apparently so impressed with that appearance that he had his production company, Worldwide Pants, develop a sitcom with Romano. Phil Rosenthal, Romano's writing partner, said the TV show they came up with was a bit of a hard sell because by 1996, networks were looking for more shows about pretty young singles like Friends. Rosenthal said people weren't jumping up and down about a show with the incredibly unsexy premise of a guy living across the street from his parents. Networks wanted something that was edgier. Eventually, CBS took a chance on the show, and the first episode of Everybody Loves Raymond premiered on September 13, 1996. By the following year, it was consistently among the most watched shows on American television. The show was based on Romano's real life, and it got its name from something his older brother used to say. He was a police officer, and he would often complain that while he faced criminals and bullets all day long... Everybody Loves Raymond. So how did this unassuming show win over such a big audience? Well, there were a couple of things that made it special. You might remember in the last episode, I mentioned that Seinfeld broke the sitcom norms by having multiple storylines in each episode. Well, because of him, that became the new norm. So when Everybody Loves Raymond decided to buck the trend 
and go in the opposite direction, it stood out. Romano and Rosenthal deliberately moved away from splintering the story into smaller and smaller pieces. Raymond had no B or C stories. It just had the A story, and all the series characters weaved in and out of that story over the course of an episode. The other thing that helped it stand out was the fact that the stories Raymond focused on were deliberately low stakes. It was the kind of stuff that everyone could relate to. The stuff of tedious family arguments that feel like they are never going to end. Who could forget the baggage episode? The premise was very simple. Ray and Deborah get locked in a three-week-long unspoken battle over who's going to put away the suitcase. The episode starts with Ray catching up his brother. What I'm saying is that Deborah's here. She's walking by it a hundred times a day. It should be driving her nuts by now. Well, at that point, I was like, fine. Doesn't bother her. It doesn't bother me. Then it escalates when Ray uses cheese as a weapon. He hides some in the suitcase. His mother, Marie, and Deborah find it. Oh! oh. Deborah, you can't keep cheese in a suitcase. <laughs> I didn't put it there, Marie. Ray. Ray! All right, right, quick, get rid of it. It culminates with an incredible feat of physical comedy as Ray and Deborah compete for who will actually move the suitcase upstairs. Okay, Ray. You know what? I'm getting it. Well, what's that supposed to mean? It means I'll get it. I'll be the one who got it. Oh, no, 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 no. The magic happened on this show when the writers made those mundane family squabbles grow in a way that encompassed the entire cast. And that particular episode, well, it's been named by critics as one of the best episodes of Everybody Loves Raymond. And it won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing. Patricia Heaton, who played Deborah, was also nominated for a Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actress for acting in that episode. And that brings me to my next point. Everybody Loves Raymond was filled with a roster of gifted performers. Like other comedians with their own TV shows, Romano wasn't the world's greatest actor, but he got better as the show went on. Patricia Heaton was perfect right from the start as Romano's wife. And Brad Garrett, as his sad sack older brother, had a huge presence with his big frame and deep, deep voice. But let's be honest, the show's secret weapon was Peter Doyle and Doris Roberts as Ray's parents, Frank and Marie. What's wrong? Nothing. What do you mean? I sense tension and anger. Maybe you're picking up your own scent. The sitcom was nominated for 69 Emmys, winning 15, including two for Outstanding Comedy Series. Romano himself received the Emmy for Best Actor in a Comedy Series in 2002. And in 2003, Romano became the richest sitcom star in history when he signed a deal to earn $1.8 million an episode. The rest of the cast was earning about 160000 an episode, which obviously didn't sit well with them. 
So Brad Garrett staged a two-week work walkout to protest the inequality. In the end, cast members were given $20 million in syndication royalties. The show went off the air in 2005 after nine seasons. Ratings were still high, and like Jerry Seinfeld before them, Romano and Rosenthal wanted to end the show while it was still funny. And the show clearly had some staying power. Almost 10 years after it went off the air, the show was still taking over the world. According to The Hollywood Reporter in 2014, Everybody Loves Raymond was in the process of being developed for Czech TV, the sixth international adaptation of Romano's sitcom. Previously, versions of the show were adapted in Russia, Egypt, Israel, the Netherlands, and the UK, where a pilot was filmed. Proving that truly, everybody did love Raymond. As for the man at the center of the show, Romano has stayed pretty busy. He starred in the series Men of a Certain Age from 2009 to 2011, and then joined the cast of the TV dramedy Parenthood in 2012 and continued with the series until it ended in 2015. More recently, he's tackled dramatic roles, including one in Martin Scorsese's Netflix movie The Irishman, and my particular favorite Romano dramatic role came in the short-lived HBO show Vinyl in 2016. Romano was asked recently if he would consider bringing back Everybody Loves Raymond for a reboot. But he says it would be impossible to recreate what made the original show so special without the three cast members that have died since filming ended. Roberts and Boyle, who played the parents, have passed away. And so has Sawyer Sweeten, who played one of Romano's young twins. He died by suicide at the age of 19 in 2015. Another mainstay of the 90s was The Drew Carey Show, which ran on ABC from 1995 to 2004, during the same years that Friends ran on NBC. You might not remember this show, but it was one of the longest-running series of the 90s. The Drew Carey Show always seemed to live in the shadows of better, more popular sitcoms, like Frasier, The Simpsons, Everybody Loves Raymond, Seinfeld, and even Spin City. In fact, The Drew Carey Show never rated in the top 10 for any year, and it peaked at number 13 in its third and fourth seasons, and then plummeted in the ratings. Despite that, it remained on the air for nine seasons, somehow avoiding the chopping block. Before Drew Carey became a comedian, he served a six-year stint in the Marines, where he adopted his signature look of a military buzz cut and thick black standard-issue glasses. When he left the Marines in 1986, Carey began to make the rounds on the comedy circuit in his hometown of Cleveland, even winning a local competition. The next year, he made two notable appearances on the TV show Star Search. Take note of that performance, judges, because you'll vote after you see the next challenger. He's a young man from Cleveland, Ohio. Here's Drew Carey. Before we carry on, let's take a minute to talk about Star Search. For those of you who don't remember or were too young to watch it, Star Search is the OG of TV talent competition shows. It was on the air long before America's Got Talent, American Idol, or The X Factor. It ran from the early 80s to the mid-90s. Many singers, actors, and comedians who went on to big fame cycled through the show, 
which was hosted by Ed McMahon, Johnny Carson's baritone-voiced sidekick. In addition to Drew Carey, other comedians who appeared on Star Search included Sinbad and Dennis Miller. Singers who competed on Star Search included Beyonce and Kelly Rowland, a 10-year-old Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Justin Timberlake, Usher, and Alanis Morissette. The quality of the talent that went through that show is really impressive, so Drew Carey was among some pretty great company. After his appearance on Star Search, he also showed up on McMahon's other show, The Tonight Show, in 1991. The audience loved Carey, and his performance earned the respect of Carson. He also caught the eye of network executives, and soon Carey landed several cable specials and a few small film and television roles. And then in 1995, ABC gave him a shot at his own sitcom. The Drew Carey Show was about an easygoing everyman who works as an assistant HR director at a department store in Cleveland, Ohio. One of the highlights of the show was the theme song, performed by the quintessential 90s rock band, Presidents of the United States of America. The show's ensemble cast included future late-night talk show host Craig Ferguson, who played Drew's nasty boss, and Kathy Kinney, who played his vindictive secretary, Mimi Bobak. Mimi wore clown makeup and crazy outfits and played the perfect villain to Drew Carey. She was supposed to be a one-time character, but ended up staying on for the length of the series and became so popular that she got her own action figure. If you don't remember her, look her up. I promise you won't be disappointed. Actors Ryan Stiles, Diedrich Bader, and Christian Miller rounded out the cast as Drew's oddball friends. The show was created by Carrie, of course, but it also had a co-creator, Bruce Helfert, who helped produce Roseanne. And the Roseanne influence is pretty obvious. Both shows have title characters from the Midwest who are barely hanging on to the lower rungs of the middle class. And both unapologetically love their modest blue-collar lifestyles. If I could have everybody's attention, we put together a little song and dance in honor of Drew. Yeah, it seemed like a good idea last night when we were drunk, and, well, it's too late to stop us now. So, a one and a two. You stick your poor ass in. You stick your poor ass out. You stick your poor ass in, and you shake it all about. You do the going brokey, because you're going down the tubes. That's when we both passed out. Hey! <laughs> and a bit of trivia for you. One of the writers on The Drew Carey Show was Paul Lieberstein, who famously went on to play Michael Scott's nemesis, Toby, on The Office. By the end of the series, just about no one was watching The Drew Carey Show. In fact, the only reason there was even a ninth season at all was because ABC was contractually obligated to air one, which meant that all 26 episodes of the ninth season were burned off over the summer, often to a night. The cast did okay. They went on to perform in a number of movies and TV shows that you are most likely familiar with. Diedrich Bader is probably best known for Office Space, but he had some notable reoccurring roles in Better Things and Veep. Christian Miller went on to be a great villain on Scrubs and the feisty next-door neighbor and best friend in Cougar Town. And Ryan Stiles is best known for his role on Whose Line Is It Anyway? 
Remember that show? In 1998, while the Drew Carey show was still on the air, Carey began hosting the American version of the wildly popular British improv show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? Which, in addition to styles, featured comedians like Colin Mockery and Wayne Brady. Three years after the Drew Carey show went off the air, Carey was tapped to helm the CBS game show The Power of Ten, And then in 2007, he was handpicked to replace Bob Barker as the host of the long-running The Price is Right. He now reportedly earns a million dollars an episode as host of the game show. So you probably know him better for his career on game shows than for The Drew Carey Show. And part of the reason is because it's hard to find. It's never been widely syndicated, and you can't stream it. And you can only buy the first season on DVD or iTunes. Even if Cleveland rocked, The Drew Carey Show didn't. Though it did earn a spot in 90s sitcom history for its longevity. There are so many other stand-up sitcoms from the 90s that either didn't get past the pilot stage or came and went so fast that you might have missed them. So let's take a look at some of those. In the early 90s, stand-up comic Sinbad, whose real name is David Adkins, achieved massive popularity with his clean-cut observational and relationship humor. The six-foot-five comedian started off wanting to play basketball and joined the Air Force, hoping to make their basketball team. When he didn't make the cut, Atkins began performing comedy while he was stationed in Wichita, Kansas. Then, after leaving the military, Atkins changed his name to Sinbad, after Sinbad the Sailor, that mythological navigator of the high seas, whose stories he had read while growing up. And like Drew Carey, he also earned a spot on Star Search. He even beat out Dennis Miller, who went on to host Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. All right, I gotta discuss something. I've gone through these years of extensive research, and I found out men have a special relationship with the underwear, ladies. First thing you know is men will never, ever throw underwear away. They'll never. I got a couple pair from junior high I'm hanging on to, just in case. After Star Search, Sinbad landed a reoccurring guest spot in 1987 on the popular 80s sitcom A Different World. He portrayed Coach Walter Oakes until 1991. He was popular enough that in September 93, he was given his own show. The Sinbad Show launched on Fox, sandwiched between The Simpsons and In Living Color on Thursday nights. Not a bad spot for this good-hearted comedy about a 35-year-old bachelor played by Sinbad, who takes on a couple of foster kids. All right, Zena. our first assignment for sewing class is to make a dress, okay? You ready for that? The question is, should I make a dress for you or me? You can't wear a dress, David. Who says I can't wear a dress? In high school, I was voted boy with the best body to wear a dress, Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Despite Sinbad's success on the comedy circuit and on A Different World, his show never really found an audience. A 1993 review in Variety said the trouble was that most of the material was predictable or recycled. The Sinbad show was canceled in April 1994 after just one season. This was one of several shows with a predominantly black cast canceled by Fox around that same time. Fox, which initially seemed to have gone out of its way to design programs that were attractive to black viewers, began the 93-94 television season with six black series. By the end of that season, Fox was left with just two, Martin and Living Single. Plus, there were a couple of series with black co-stars. 
Activist Jesse Jackson protested the cancellations and called for a boycott of the network for institutional racism. But Fox maintained that the series were low-rated and the decision to cancel was not racially motivated. At the time, LA Times columnist Howard Rosenberg pointed out the irony and injustice that Fox was being criticized over the cancellations. The only reason Fox was able to cancel so many black series in 94 was that it had them in the first place, something that the other big networks had very few of at the time. Rosenberg went on to say, one of TV's biggest disgraces is that white programmers rarely extend the airwaves to black drama series and even less rarely to Latino or Asian series in general. Which brings me to our next show, ABC's All-American Girl. The show, starring Margaret Cho, was the first Asian-American sitcom to air on network television. Cho grew up in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco, where her parents owned an independent bookstore. As a teenager, she began performing stand-up at a comedy club next to the bookstore and was financially independent by the age of 16. Her routine, which was loud, raucous, and unapologetically crude, was based on her family relationships and her experiences as a first-generation Korean-American. My mother is convinced that everybody in show business does drugs. She's like, oh, you cannot go to the club because they take the drugs. The people, they take the cocaines. And then they take the D, what is it, the D, the L, the D, the D, the D, the D. Mom, it's LSD. How do you know that? Before landing her TV gig, the rising star toured the comedy circuit, opening for some pretty big acts, including Jerry Seinfeld and Bob Hope. She also made frequent appearances on The Arsenio Hall Show. Then in 1994, after winning the American Comedy Award for Best Female Comedian, ABC offered the young, outspoken comic her own sitcom. All-American Girl was loosely based on her stand-up routines, and it told the story of a modern 23-year-old college student living at home with her traditional Korean-American family. When the show debuted on September 14, 1994, it seemed Cho was on her way to next-level fame. But instead, the show was widely panned by critics. They said it was full of bad jokes and boring storylines that endorsed rather than shattered ethnic stereotypes. Margaret, do you know why I encourage your brother to become a cardiologist? No. Because I always knew that one day you'd give me a heart attack. What are you wearing? <laughs> Funny how fashion come back. Your uncle in the soul would have a concubine wear dress just like that. <laughs> Asian-American viewers held their breath prior to the show's premiere, hoping it would finally offer something that broke away from decades-long racist depictions of their culture. They were deeply disappointed. The show was unceremoniously cancelled after its 19-episode run due to poor ratings. Cho has said in recent years the problem was that she did not have creative control over the show. She said that ABC's interference turned her personal experiences into something that was unfamiliar to her. And it was really too bad. Cho was chosen because of who she was, a non-conformist Korean-American woman with liberal views. Then the powers that be decided they wanted her to tone it down for the show. 
She says they even made her lose weight so that her face was, in their words, less round. In her 2002 autobiography, I'm the One That I Want, Cho wrote this, For fear of being too ethnic, the show got so watered down for television that by the end, it was completely lacking in the essence of what I am and what I do. And even though the show was a watershed moment, it took two decades for the next Asian American sitcom to hit the airwaves. Fresh Off the Boat premiered in 2015 and was loosely based on the memoir by Eddie Wong. It was the first series with an Asian American cast to film over 100 episodes and ran for six seasons until 2020. The cancellation of All American Girl in 1995 sent Cho into a spiral of depression and drug addiction. But eventually, she found her way back to the stage and in the past 20 years has pumped out comedy records, books, and a music album. She has continuously toured and hosted comedy specials and even a couple of podcasts. The year before All-American Girl debuted, another sitcom starring a popular female comic hit the airwaves. When the show Grace Under Fire premiered in September 1993, its star, Brett Butler, was the new darling of ABC. It was the latest series created by TV sitcom guru Chuck Lorre and was produced by Carsey Werder, which you may remember was behind The Cosby Show and Roseanne. These are some pretty big names in sitcoms, and as a result, Butler and her show were expected to be the next big thing. Similar to Roseanne, Butler's character was a tough-talking blue-collar mom with touches of trailer park realism. Hey, Mom? Yeah? Can I get a BB gun? (laughs) No, Quentin, you can't, but don't lose hope. Maybe the nice folks at the orphanage will get you one. The show mirrored Butler's own life experiences, which included a traumatic childhood in Alabama, an abusive first marriage to an alcoholic husband, and years of working as a waitress in rundown bars. Butler got her big break after performing at the Just for Last Festival in Montreal, which became one of the main places outside of LA that TV executives would look for new talent. The festival is held in July, right as TV's annual development season is gearing up. So Just for Laughs became ground zero for deal-making. Sometimes networks would get into bidding wars over comedians who had a bit of buzz, even if the networks had yet to meet them. Some of those deals worked out, like Butler's, while others didn't get past the pilot phase. Paul Brownfield, who was the TV critic for the LA Times in the 90s, remembers that era well. There was just this sense, I mean, I don't know, that you were, you know, a week away from getting a deal that was going to turn into a, you know, that was the dream anyway, into a, into a And there were certainly lots and lots of really talented people who made pilots that nobody ever saw. And then they kind of had to pick up the pieces afterwards and sort of figure out what's next for me. As for Butler, well, ABC was all in, even giving her show one of the most coveted time slots in primetime, right after Home Improvement. And it did not disappoint. Grace Under Fire vaulted into primetime's top 10 in its first season, and it tied Frasier for the People's Choice Award as favorite new comedy series. For the first few seasons, the show and its stars seemed to be on top of the world, moored in the coveted berth after Home Improvement. The show averaged 21 million viewers a year, 
but by its last season, the audience had dwindled to half of that. So how did TV's next golden goose lay such an egg? Well, much of the show's demise is blamed on Butler's erratic behavior and substance abuse issues. Production sources told the LA Times in 98 that Butler wouldn't follow scripts, and that would force producers to cobble together episodes from whatever footage was usable. She was accused of frequent tantrums on set, cursing, and one time throwing a pop can at executive producer Tom Straw. As a result, the show began taping frequently without a studio audience. You may recall from the previous episode that working conditions on the set of Roseanne were pretty similar. But that show managed to stay on the air for nine seasons. That's because Roseanne's content wasn't really affected by her behavior until the last couple of seasons. On Grace, producers said turning out coherent episodes became a major challenge. These difficult working conditions were also a nightmare for the other actors on the show. Before the final season began, John Paul Stewart, the 12-year-old actor who played Grace's son Quentin on the show, abruptly quit. There were reports that Butler hiked up her skirt and flashed her boobs in front of Stewart, and his parents felt Butler's behavior was detrimental to his well-being and pulled him out of the show. Production on Grace Under Fire halted in October 1996 when Butler sought treatment for what was reported to be an addiction to painkillers. The show was then halted again in August 97 when she apparently suffered a relapse. Then the show shut down for good in January 1998, 14 episodes into a 25-episode season. At the time of the break in 98, Carsey Werner issued a statement saying, We have decided to suspend production on Grace Under Fire so that Brett Butler may have time to resolve personal issues. Ultimately, though, the show never came back. Butler fell into a downward spiral after the cancellation. In 2011, she revealed to Entertainment Tonight that she was living in a homeless shelter after years of substance abuse. Butler said she regrets the way she acted at the height of her career and hopes that people will forgive her. In 2013, she began a little bit of a comeback when she was cast in the Charlie Sheen sitcom Anger Management. And since then, she's picked up other supporting roles, including most recently playing Reese Witherspoon's mom in the Apple Plus series, The Morning Show. You might remember the hits, and I may have reminded you of some of the misses, but we can't talk about 90s sitcoms without mentioning one of the bigger failures of the stand-up sitcom boom era. Bless this house. The show was completely unrelated to the more successful British sitcom of the same name and was created by Bruce Helford, the writer-producer from Roseanne, who also created The Drew Carey Show. This Bless This House starred Andrew Dice Clay. Up until 1995, he was known for being this notoriously foul-mouthed comic, and he was actually one of the most loved and hated comedians of the late 80s and early 90s. Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet, <laughs> eating her curds and whey. Long came a spidey, sat down beside her, he said, hey, what's in the bowl, bitch? His X-rated routines were extremely controversial and contained graphic depictions of sex and disparaging remarks about women, minorities, and gays. Clay's notoriety reached its peak when he was scheduled to host Saturday Night Live, 
and both cast member Nora Dunn and musical guest Sinead O'Connor boycotted the show in protest. But by the mid-90s, the Dice Man was ready for a change. He promised to reform and drop Dice from his name before his new CBS sitcom went on the air September 11, 1995. The show featured Clay and Kathy Moriarty as a Ralph Cramden marries Roseanne blue-collar couple. Critics called the show a ridiculous knockoff of The Honeymooners. The show lasted 16 episodes before it was cancelled. Clay immediately returned to doing his raunchy stand-up act in which he sneered at the show and claimed to be having sex with Moriarty. He proudly went on Howard Stern's radio show in 1995 to declare, The Dice Man is back and he continues to perform to this day. In fact, you might remember in 2018, he appeared in the film A Star is Born alongside Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. He played Gaga's character's father and beat out several high-profile actors, including Robert De Niro and Ray Liotta for the part. Bless This House did not fare as well. In 2002, TV Guide listed it as number 48 on their list of 50 worst shows of all time. By the time Bless This House was cancelled, the stand-up sitcom boom was already showing signs that it may have run its course. The market was completely saturated, and nearly any comic who was even a little bit funny had been scouted by the networks. Paul Brownfield isn't surprised that the stand-up sitcom boom got out of control. Pick a trend and television will burn it out. You know what I mean? Like, as soon as something is a success, you know, it just seems like television can't resist making 2,000 more until people become sick of it. The King of Queens, which launched in 1998 after Kevin James got attention as a guest star on Everybody Loves Raymond, ended up being the last mega-hit from the stand-up boom. And even though sitcoms veered away from shows based around stand-up comics, they still remained a mainstay through the 2000s, with shows like Arrested Development and The Office becoming the blueprint for successful comedies in the 21st century. Today, we're seeing fewer and fewer traditional sitcoms. The only half-hour TV comedies that consistently crack the weekly top 30 in the past couple of years were The Big Bang Theory, Young Sheldon, The Connors, and Mom. Stack that up against the 1994-95 TV season when 18 of the top 30 shows were half-hour comedies. But that doesn't mean comedy is dead. It's just different. Cable and streaming services have pushed comedy away from single-camera shows that are centered on a fixed set. Shows now tend to be grittier and often shot on location, including Amazon's incredibly funny Fleabag and one of my faves, Barry, on HBO. And of course, some of those 90s shows we know and love are back in reboots. In addition to Roseanne, Will and Grace, along with Murphy Brown, have been rebooted. Paul Brownfield said, We may criticize reboots for being unoriginal, but they make sense for networks. So I think it stems from that idea of, okay, well, if we reboot, if we say we're going to reboot Buffy, the vampire slayer, let's say, I think is another important 90s show. But anyway, if we say we're going to reboot Buffy, the vampire slayer, we know we're going to get press. We know we're going to get 
social media talking talking about it. It's an easy sell to like who's is is, is Sarah Michelle Geller coming back? Who should play Buffy if it's not Miss? You just it's like there's a lot of kind of natural dialogue that gets going. That's a lot easier to sell than a show that you know might be ten times more original, but nobody has heard of the lead, and you're you know having to compare the premise to something else. As networks fight for audiences, there has been a new boom of sorts for comedians to make their jump to the small screen. YouTube and Funny or Die have replaced Johnny Carson. Comedian Issa Rae made the jump from YouTube to her own HBO show with Insecure. Broad City's Alana Glazer and Abby Jacobson had five hilarious seasons on Comedy Central. Streaming platforms have moved into traditional networks' turf and are spending millions to lock down Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, and Dave Chappelle to their platforms. They're not creating sitcoms, but showcasing their comedy specials. Netflix can now make stars faster than networks can. Just look at the success of rising comics like Hannah Gadsby and Ali Wong. The COVID pandemic has put extra strains on networks trying to push for comic-centered sitcoms. Not only has it halted production on current shows, it's thrown into question the development of new ones. Stand-up comics, talent managers, and club owners are worried that the touring business will be wiped out and that it may never be the same. The fight for cable and network channels to stay relevant in this space will be a real challenge in the future. Thanks for joining me for this look back at some of the shows that made stand-up sitcoms so great in the 90s. If you've got an idea for a show, I'd love to hear from you. You can always reach me through Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can send me an email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please give us a nice rating and review. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. And you can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, along with Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.